Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week on the Couch Potatoes, it is an exciting week on television with not one but two of our favorite shows returning on March 1st. I'm Jeff Braun. Ant-Man rules the box office. We'll review the Quantumania. And the countdown to the Oscars continues with a review of Women Talking. And we're getting ahead of ourselves with this one, but we simply cannot contain our excitement for next month's fourth chapter of John Wick. But first, Ant-Man and the Wasp open big with Quantumania. The Conqueror. He will burn the world to find you. On February 17th, if you want to stop what's coming, better hurry, Ant-Man. I don't care who this guy is. This is my fight. I'm coming for you! You think you can beat me? I am Kane! Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Ready PG-13, February 17th. Get tickets now. It stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Michelle Pfeiffer, Michael Douglas, Catherine Newton, and Jonathan Majors. And the third Ant-Man movie, and the first of the MCU's Phase 5, opened with $225 million worldwide last weekend, making it easily the biggest opening weekend of the year so far. Like millions of others, I saw it this week, and it was a bit of a mixed bag for me. Ultimately, too quantum I think. Uh, I called this last week already. I, I don't mind going to going to space and watching superhero adventures with all sorts of crazy aliens and whatnot, like in Guardians of the Galaxy and Thor. But the essence of the first two Ant-Man movies was that it was an adventure in the so-called real world, just a street-level adventure with people in suits that can shrink or grow at the push of a button. Low-stakes stuff, kind of cozy, familiar, and comforting. And this is not that. And I know we said just last week that part of the reason for some of the MCU fatigue is that the movies all seem the same and now I'm complaining that this movie isn't the same so I guess I'm part of the problem. Uh, after a brief intro to catch us up on the life and times of Scott Lang who is of course Ant-Man played by Paul Rudd, we're into the quantum realm which technically is a super teensy ultra microscopic universe but for all intents and purposes it might as well be outer space. There's a bunch of crazy aliens and stuff and we stay in this CGI'd quantum realm for the rest of the movie and a lot of fun things do happen there, but it feels like a much different movie than the first two Ant-Mans. And for me, not in a good way because of the environment. Ant-Man using, you know, a flatbed truck as a scooter on the streets of San Francisco, I think is much more entertaining than CGI creatures blasting CGI creatures with lasers, at least for me. The plot, pretty simple. Ant-Man, his daughter, the Wasp, and her parents get sucked into the quantum realm and then try to get home. They discover a whole uh, world of creatures and people down there. Some are friendly, some are not. And we learn that, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer already knows about this place, having spent 30 years stuck down there. Until now, the movies would have had us believe that the quantum realm was uninhabited, but now it's a whole thing. It's nice to see Michelle Pfeiffer get a proper part in this movie because she did not get much to do in the second movie, and she shows up for, like, one shot in the Avengers Endgame, I think, at the end when there's a funeral. There's also a B story in Quantumania about Paul Rudd connecting with his teenage daughter. And of course, they face a bad guy in the quantum realm, Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors. Now, we know that Kang is going to be the big bad for the next couple of phases of the MCU. He's the new Thanos, so that removes some of the tension. Not that you ever really wonder how a superhero movie is going to end. Kang seemed like a good villain. He was suitably mean at times. He was also a good deal more charming, I thought, than Thanos ever was. I will say that this movie, for all the fun and action it has, also has an awful lot of very boring, very serious speeches. I 
almost fell asleep a couple of times, but then the action would come along and kind of perk me back up. And it's funny, there are a bunch of uh, creatures providing comic relief. There's a, a jellyish creature who's obsessed with all the holes in a human body. William Jackson Harper, who was a cheaty on The Good Place, has a small part. He's very funny. Bill Murray appears briefly doing Bill Murray-type things. The lack of Michael Pena, though, is upsetting. He stole his scenes in those first two movies. And I would have loved to have seen him interacting with the locals in the quantum realm or even had him stay back in the real world, but you know, having him trying to get Ant-Man back, something like that, anything like that. So it's disappointing that he's not in this movie. There are a couple of fun surprises. I'm, I'm not sure what counts as an actual surprise, so I won't say any more. And of course, you know, stay tuned through the credits for some extra scenes. And these sort of harken back to the first couple of phases where the scenes then would point to the future of the MCU and what lies in store, which is another good thing about this movie. You know, while being its own standalone Ant-Man movie, it does introduce us to Kang properly, who will be a recurring figure for the next few years, it looks like. So it kind of kicks off Phase 5 with a promise of what's to come, more so than almost everything else in Phase 4. Although, of course, Kang was in uh, the end of that Loki series. Um, well, it has some laughs. It has some fun visuals. There are a lot of very boring parts that kind of drag this movie down for me. Not sure the casual MCU fan really needs to rush out to theaters for this one. This one, you might want to wait until it's on Disney+, Plus, which, if uh, the last few movies is any indication, won't be very long. Just a couple of months, and this thing will be streaming for free. But I'll give Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania three couch cushions out of five. Brett? So you say that you feel like this movie finally is starting to lay some groundwork? Like, like can you yeah. see, you can now see kind of a, a potential path of a storyline? Well, yeah, because they announced that there's like an Avengers, uh, something about the world of Kang. That's not what it's called. <laughs> they use the word Kang in one of those Avenger titles for like 2025 or 26, right? So yeah. you know it's going to be him. And then you get uh, some indications of what that might be. And then, you know, they reveal some stuff in those stingers at the end that you, you oh, I can't say anything more about that. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's better than phase four where it would just be, you know, like you watch the Eternals and it's like, well, what does this have to do with the MCU? And then in the stinger of that, it's like, the, the, the Harry Styles shows up, right? And it's like, well, what does he have to do with anything? And there were just like questions upon questions upon questions. And here it's like, oh, I sort of recognize what this might be about. And so it, it just felt a little more reassuring that they actually have a plan that they know what they're doing. Yeah, it was uh, the phase four essentially was almost entirely just laying pipe. Like they were just planting seeds. They were laying the groundwork for things to come in phase five and six. And I don't necessarily mind that because that's pretty much what they were doing through the first phase as we discussed. But it, it yeah. culminated with that awesome first Avengers movie, which was essentially all they were working towards. And then we got a hint of the bigger things that were coming down the road. So it's good to hear that maybe they're starting to rein in the focus a little bit. As far as what remains for phase five for this year, we've got Guardians of the Galaxy volume three out on May 5th. The Marvels, which combines uh, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, and then uh, another Marvel woman character. I can't remember her name, but she was in WandaVision. Uh, she was pretty cool. And uh, they've delayed that. It was supposed to come out in July, but it's been pushed back to November 10th. Uh, partly, I think, just because Disney needed a, or Marvel needed a big um, holiday 
time movie. So oh, their Thanksgiving kind of deal. Yeah, but it could also be reshoots. I don't know. I haven't really looked into it. I'm not. I'm. I'm not super excited about though that one just because I don't really like Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. Uh, but I did enjoy the Ms. Marvel television series, and I'm hearing so far that she kind of steals the show in the movie. So that's. Cool. And then on television, we have Secret Invasion. That's the one with Samuel L. Jackson returning as Nick Fury. That's coming out some point early 2023. The second season of Loki is coming out mid-2023. And uh, the rest of them are kind of up in the air. The only one that has a, a firm sort of target is Daredevil Born Again which is early 2024, and uh, I think that's going to be the final television show of Phase 5. So, okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I'm optimistic. I'm just no longer excited about Marvel. I, I'm glad to hear that they're slowing down a bit, especially on the TV show front, and even pushing back some of these movies so we don't need, like, four movies and four series each year. I know they had like a backlog after COVID and stuff like that, but like we mentioned last week, it, it was still, it was too much. So if, if they can cut this down to like three movies and two series a year, I think that's more than enough. Speaking of series, up next, we are going to tell you about two of our favorite series, and they both happen to be returning on the same day. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and a new season of Survivor starts this coming week. If you've never watched Survivor... Oh my God. Where have you been? We are built different. We built different. This doesn't bond us. I don't know what will. <laughs> I can't wait to not shower and brush my teeth. Bring it! Watch the new season of Survivor premiering March 1st on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. And on Global, Survivor 44 debuts this coming Wednesday, March 1st. It'll see 18 players divided into three tribes and will feature 26 days of gameplay once again, same as they've been doing since they uh, came back after the start of the pandemic. Bit of an older cast if the Wikipedia is to be believed. Only two contestants under the age of 25 and five contestants 35 or older. That seems uh, usually... a probably go about the other way on those i'm sure there'll be a variety of twists and turns as there always is they're very good about trying new things while mostly keeping the essence of the game intact they're also pretty good about throwing out new twists that don't work they tried a couple of those in the last few seasons and uh not all of them have come back the next season that type of thing so we'll wonder what will remain this year that was there last year survivor you know aims to please when they do these sort of things so they take wild swings but they don't let it go too far if it's not happening regardless of advantages and idols and whatnot the strength of the season of course will always come down to the cast so we'll see what we get there and as always it'll be nice to see the sunny sunny warm beaches of the south pacific as we make our final push through winter in canada i got very excited when i saw a promo this week i'm not sure what it is but there's always just something exciting about the return of survivor it's been on for so long that there's there's both a nostalgia factor but also there's you know a modern tv factor to it it's both new and old every season it's uh, kind of in its own little lane on tv at the moment and uh always exciting when survivor comes back brett yeah i'm excited too although i will admit that i i tend to get more excited for the fall season and i don't 
really know why. Um, I have, I've lost interest in a couple of the spring seasons in recent years. Like one of them, I just outright oh. dropped out. I saw I missed a couple episodes. I I didn't miss them, but I I they were I was falling behind on my PVR, and I thought, you know what, I don't really care about any of these people, so I'm out of here. But uh, I think I was not alone with that particular season. I can't remember which one it was. Doesn't matter. But the point yeah. is, yeah, I tend to get more. I get really excited about Survivor in the fall and heading into winter. Whereas the spring, I don't know. Um, could be just that I, when I see these people outside, it makes me want to be outside in the sun and, like, <laughs> and actually go outside when, when it starts to warm up. But I think uh, you nailed it. It's the cast. And I think even with the last couple of seasons, there have been some some road bumps where I kind of didn't care about what the cast was doing. And then suddenly somebody would flip the whole thing on its head. And I go, yep, there we go. There's Survivor. It's it's funny. Like I can't even remember who won the, nope. <laughs> the last season already. And I'm still excited. I can't even excited. remember three people that were in it. Or even one person. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But it's going to be good, I'm sure. And a show that has that kind of staying power needs to be congratulated. 44 seasons and counting for Survivor. So once again, that returns... Wednesday, March 1st on Global, also on March 1st on Disney+. Plus, One of the streamers' biggest hits is back for its third season, which means this is a good year so far for actor Pedro Pascal. I'm going to Mandalore so that I may be forgiven for my transgressions. May the Force be with you! This is the way. The Star Wars show The Mandalorian, starring Pedro Pascal as The Mandalorian. He's also the star of The Last of Us on HBO, which so far has been a critical and commercial success. So yeah, I'd say he's having a pretty good year so far. The Mandalorian is set in the time after the fall of the Empire, but before the rise of the First Order, so somewhere between episodes 6 and 7. The Mandalorian follows Din Djarin, a man who was once a lone bounty hunter, but is now inching towards something bigger, something more grandiose. He has a helmet and armor similar to that of Boba Fett because it's the look of his people, the people of Mandalore, a planet that was decimated by the Empire, but some seek to rebuild it, and it looks like he'll be teaming up with several other Mandalorians this season, but to what end? Who knows? And by the way, yes, I know Boba Fett was, is not technically from Mandalore. He was a clone who was created on, I can't remember the name of that other planet, whatever. But more importantly, his adventures continue, the Mandalorian's adventures continue with little Grogu, aka Baby Yoda. They were briefly separated, but now they're back together, bouncing through the galaxy, and as Din Djarin crosses paths with old allies and makes new enemies. So season one debuted in late 2019, season two in late 2020, and then there was sort of a backdoor mini-season of The Mandalorian in the Book of Boba Fett, which debuted late in 2021. So it's been a long time coming to get a proper, full Mando season. And The Mandalorian was essentially Disney Plus's launch party. Like, the streamer debuted on November 12th, 2019, and so did the show. And since then, Disney's produced a whole bunch of Star Wars content. Some live action, some animated. Uh, but this is my favorite by far, with Andor in second place. And Jeff, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you had it in reverse, where Andor is now your favorite live action. 
Yeah, and but I've never been this excited for Mandalorian as I am for this. And I think the Andor did that to me. It got me back into the Star Wars world because I was starting to kind of drift out of it. Yeah, and the book of Boba Fett was more like the book of Boba Matt. But uh, never would I have thought that some random story about a lone bounty hunter would A, be as successful as it's been, and B, be one of my favorite Star Wars things ever. Like, when I first heard about The Mandalorian, I looked at the pictures and I read about the story and thought, like, who's this chump? Why why do I care about <laughs> The Mandalorian? And uh, here we are. I'm just so excited about it. What did, what did you think when they first announced The Mandalorian? I, I honestly, I don't remember what I thought, but I was just like, oh, more Star Wars garbage that I'm going to have to memorize names and places and <laughs> aliens and planets and stuff like that. It's, it was already, it's already too much, you know what I mean? So uh, that's where I usually fall on Star Wars. But yeah, I never in a million years would have believed that it would be as good as it has been and, you know, as good as it is and how exciting it is that it's coming back. I, I, I'm surprised that I'm looking forward to it as much as I am. Once again, The Mandalorian Season 3 debuts on Disney Plus on Wednesday, March 1st. This is the way. And as excited as we are for Survivor and The Mandalorian, we might be even more excited for the fourth chapter of the movie we're going to tell you about next. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are The Couch Potatoes. And Jeff, you joked last week that instead of going to see a new movie on the big screen, because I keep saying I gotta go see them see a movie, uh, that I would instead stay home and re-watch Star Wars, Rogue One, and Lord of the Rings, which was actually a pretty good guess. But uh, indeed, I did not go to the movies, in spite of the fact that I still need to see Avatar 2, and still, in spite of the fact that I would like to see Titanic again before it's gone next week, and I should probably see Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. But instead, I started scrolling through the streamer services on Friday, and once I saw this 2014 gem pop up, it was game over. I lost everything. That dog was a final gift from my dying wife. Where'd you get that car? What does it matter? It's not what you did, son. It's who you did it to. Nobody? But nobody. It's John Wick. Yes, I watched John Wick because he is finally back next month on March 24th. People keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. So John Wick came out in 2014, as mentioned. It made $86 million worldwide, so it was a modest hit. It had 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I remember when I saw the first trailer for this, I thought, Keanu Reeves, hey? Because we hadn't really seen Keanu in anything big for a while. And I thought the movie looked weird, but also interesting. And then when I saw the positive reviews come in, I thought, maybe I should go check this out. And sure enough, I loved it. One of the most unique action films I've ever seen and uh, I still think it, the, the sequels are fun and we'll talk about the sequels in a moment here but nothing for me beats that first one Just it, it's such a simple revenge flick these Russian thugs kill his dog so he kills everybody because he was grieving his wife and his wife bought, got him the dog and 
Days later, they kill the dog and steal his car, and he goes on a revenge rampage, and it's just so much fun to watch the violent carnage ensue, which I realize kind of probably makes me sound like a psycho, but hey, it's a movie. That's the whole point. It's just uh, silly fun. So, Jeff, uh, you got onto the John Wick train a little bit later, and I think you got on the train even more so than I did. I, uh, you well, you kept talking, going on and on about how good John Wick was, and then it was that was coming at me from other sources as well. So, uh, I think it was you know the week before John Wick Two came out, I was like, well, I got to see what this John Wick's about. Watch the first one, loved it, and like ran to the theater to see the second one. And then uh, ever since then, it's the long, painful years long wait between movies that is driving me nuts. But yeah, I, I'm fully on board with John Wick. It, it, it's just so much fun, and it's just perfect casting. Like you mentioned, how when the first one popped up and you're like, oh, Keanu Reeves, because yeah, that guy's had a roller coaster of a career, if anyone has. He's had very high highs, but also very low lows. But then to him cast as John Wick is honest to God, like one of the, like the five most perfect pieces of casting in the history of the film of movies like he's just perfect for it you you, you buy him 100 as the doing all the physical action stuff because you know that he trains for this stuff because we've seen him do it in these youtube videos or whatever and then you know when he's just like uh speaks awfully and carry a big stick is he's a perfect guy for that because whenever he you know has to say a lot of words people rag on his acting but it's a uh, terminator 2 styles like give the guy like 20 words total for the movie and it works. Yeah. And he does train so hard. And I think one of the things that really stands out for these movies is the attention to detail. So even the way that he holds the gun, he never holds it sort of side angle. Like he's trying to look cool. He always holds it with two hands uh, or for the most part he does because that's tactically more logical and you can count the number of shots, the number of bullets that come out of these guns before they stop and reload. Like, it might seem like, they, you know, he just reloaded and now he's reloading again. Like, can we get on with this? But they, they're they very meticulous at making sure that the gunplay, while it's still a movie, but that it's as realistic as possible. So I really like that. I like the fact, and I think John Wick was one of the movies that kind of bucked the trend of action movies that, Instead of having a thousand cuts and edits in a fight scene, they just kind of hold the camera back and let the action play out. So we got to see him, you know, you see him take out like 10, 15 guys in one single camera shot. So that was refreshing because it was the Jason Bourne effect, right? I think the Jason Bourne movies, and they did them very, they did it very well, where the action was frenetic and the editing was frenetic. And at times it might have seemed like too much. But it was by design, and a lot of movies then took it one step further, like the Taken movies with Liam Neeson. Fun movies, but they're way over-edited, so it was nice to see John Wick sort of slow it down. And then to add, in spite of the fact that it was just this simple little revenge tale, they add this mysterious background of like this assassin society. There's a a hotel where they all stay and that has exclusive rules. You're not allowed to conduct quote-unquote company business, i.e. you can't kill each other on the hotel grounds. And they have their own currency, like their own coins. And uh, so I liked that we just got a hint of it in that first one. And then in 2016, they expanded on it in John Wick Chapter 2. The man, the myth, 
the legend. John Wick. You're not very good at retiring. I'm working on it. Its domestic take was bigger than the first one's worldwide total. $92 million domestic, $171 million worldwide. And I remember when I saw this movie, I liked it, but I think I was almost overwhelmed because whereas the first one provided a backdrop, but not a lot of it, the second one like smashed those doors open and really introduced us into this world of assassination. And I thought it was a little too much, but I've since come around on it and I quite enjoy it. Which, uh, what was your, re- you, didn't you see the second one like twice in one weekend? Uh, I believe I might have done that. Yeah, that sounds like something I would do. Absolutely. I would also put out the, the fun fact that the, one of the screenings of former Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister was in attendance. It was weird. The movie's about to start, and all of a sudden, this guy walks in. I was like, hey, that's our premiere. <laughs> okay. Guess he's watching John Wick today. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> I li- The second one's my favorite one. I like that one best. I think it uh, has a lot to do with uh, everything that happens in Italy. There's that cavern fight that he's... Oh, after after that party or whatever, there's a lady in the tub or whatever, and then he starts gunfighting with everybody. I love that. And that and the, and then the him and Common taking pot shots at each other like in a crowd of at a subway or whatever it is that's that blew that it was it made me laugh but it also like was legitimately fun action to watch so uh, i enjoy the second one the most and it does have some just beautiful shots in the end where they're going through the the museum exhibit and there's all the mirrors and the bright colors it really uh, it looks spectacular and it's just a ton of fun and again big hit big reviews from critics and then in 2019, we got John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Do you expect him to make it out? A $14 million bounty on his head. And everyone in the city wants a piece of it. I say the odds are about even. Monster hit, $171 million domestic, $328 million worldwide. Interesting to note, there were concrete plans for a fourth and fifth movie. They were going to be shot back-to-back, and then Lionsgate decided to not shoot them back-to-back, so a fifth movie is not guaranteed. (laughs) And Keanu Reeves, he's so modest, he says, I I think we have to wait and see how the audience responds to it. Hopefully they'll like it. Like, dude, are you kidding? (laughs) Yeah. That's that's wild because as 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 if this fourth one isn't going to be as good as the other three. That's uh, the the quality's been amazingly consistent. Like I'll say two is better than one, and you know one is better than three or whatever. But the difference is very minimal. Like it, to me, it's all one big long movie, really. Yeah, yeah, fully agree. I had I watched all three movies this weekend, and I had as much fun with all three of them. Like I still enjoy the the simple elegance of that first one, but all three of them are just as much fun. You can't watch, I just can't watch one without watching all of them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing John Wick Chapter 4 when it debuts on March 24th. The only way John Wick will ever have freedom and peace is in death. Yeah. Not really. In a moment, we are going to switch gears from wild action to rather serious Oscar fare. Jeff has a review as he racks up his 
best picture viewings. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and the countdown to the Oscars continues. This week I saw Sarah Pauly's Women Talking. If we do not forgive these men, we forfeit our place in heaven. We cannot endure any more violence. We were all attacked, all of us. So we must decide to do nothing. Stay and fight or leave. I will become a murderer if I stay. We are not all murderers. Not yet. Women Talking in Cinemas February 17. Women Talking is written and directed by Canada's Sarah Pauly, adapted from a novel by Manitoba writer Miriam Taves. It's set on an old-school traditional Mennonite colony in Bolivia, apparently, although there is no mention of this in the movie, which is set in 2010. Again, no mention of time in the movie. And aside from a couple of references, you'd be forgiven for thinking this movie was set in the 1800s in rural Canada. Specifically, the movie is about the women of the colony who find themselves in a very difficult and heartbreaking situation. There are a group of men on the colony who have been raping the women and because of the traditional hierarchy that exists there the women cannot do anything about it they have no voice in the society which is not uncommon for women in many societies over the years sadly and then one day they've had enough they vote to do something about it but what it comes down to either picking up and leaving the colony or staying and fighting back and the movie is a day's worth of conversations between a group of women elected to make the decision for the larger group. And it's pretty riveting. I will say, like I said earlier in Ant-Man, there were a few short speeches about quote-unquote serious things that nearly put me to sleep. And in Women Talking, there are many very long speeches about actual serious things that were gripping and involving and emotional uh, the structure works surprisingly well. Many time movies that are kind of set in one room and are mostly just a group of people talking, that can get pretty dull after a while, visually speaking. Not here. The direction isn't showy, but Polly does figure out how to put little breaks in the conversation, either with some flashbacks or someone coming in with news or something. She doesn't let any one strand of the conversation kind of wear out its welcome. And the women touch on a lot of philosophical themes about their place in their society and the world, how the religion affects everything they know, how to reconcile their pacifism with the fact they'd like to get some revenge. Uh, there are also three generations of women involved here, offering different perspectives, of course, as you get with different generations. I suppose if you were to pick out some of the three main characters, they're the ones played by Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, and Rooney Mara, three women with young kids or one on the way, and they all have different points of view on the matter as well. Rooney Mara is the most soft-spoken, but she also seems to very easily adopt the idea of abandoning the community and trying to make her way out in the quote-unquote real world. Claire Foy, on the other hand, would like to fight. She's only concerned about the safety of her children and says she'll gladly give in to her violent thoughts if it'll save them from being abused. And Jesse Buckley kind of comes off initially as the most bitter, and we can imagine she has good reason to be. And These are just broad-stroke character descriptions, and over the course of the movie, they deepen, and we get a richer understanding of all these women. And there are other characters as well. I only mentioned those three because they're kind of the big-name actresses involved. Frances McDormand, also in the movie briefly. Uh, ben Wishaw is in the movie. He's uh, lately known as for playing uh, the character Q in the James Bond movies. He plays the colony's teacher, and he's invited to the meeting to take the minutes. He's also in love with one of the women. That becomes very obvious very quickly. Um, the performances by everyone are dynamite. I'm now very surprised that there are not any 
uh, acting Oscar nominations for this movie. I'd say Mara, Buckley, Wishaw, and uh, two of the older women, Judith Ivey and Sheila McCarthy, are all deserving of some recognition, which may in fact be the problem that too many of them are too good for anyone to really, really stand out. It's, it's just a solid ensemble and works very well as an ensemble, but uh, there's some fine performances there. The two nominations the movie did get are big ones, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay for Polly and Best Picture, and it doesn't feel like it's going to win Best Picture, but I think Polly has got a shot at the writing award, and wouldn't that be exciting? She's a long been a Canadian favorite. The other movies in the Best Adapted Screenplay category are All Quiet on the Western Front, Glass Onion, Living, and Top Gun Maverick. Usually the writing awards kind of end up in the hands of Best Picture nominees, which eliminates Glass Onion and Living. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front did just win a ton of awards at the BAFTAs, including their best picture so that might be a contender and frankly the fact that top gun is nominated for a writing award makes me think that it has the best chance of winning because clearly a lot of people think it does and and deservedly so as we've explained so many times over the past year because we just love top gun maverick but they also like to give the writing awards to directors that won't be winning best director so i think Polly might be one of the front runners here as well and again deservedly so the movie is fantastic. It's in theaters now. Four and a half couch cushions out of five for women talking. And if you are curious to know what is new at the movies this weekend, there's, there's I'm actually really excited about this. Luther, The Fallen Son. This is a movie starring Idris Elba reprising his role as Detective John Luther. It's a series that aired across the pond from 2010 to 2019. Five seasons and only 20 episodes over the course of 10 years. It's a really dark crime thriller, and the movie looks also dark and crime thrillery, and Andy Serkis plays the bad guy in that, so that is cool. And then if you don't get to see it on the big screen, it will debut on Netflix on March 10th. There's also one called Jesus Revolution, about... Uh, a huge religious movement in the 70s involving hippies and peace and love. It was a big deal. Kelsey Grammer plays a pastor in that. And Cocaine Bear is out in theaters this weekend. Need I say more on that? That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.